Well, good morning. He is risen. Okay, that was better. That was better. I, I'm glad you responded to Jesus better than you responded to me just now. That, that, that's excellent. If you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, as you will begin in, in verse 11, as, as you turn there, uh, let me say that it's, it's nice uh, to see so many people here, and, and I normally don't dress like this. If I were at the seminary and you saw this, everyone would just say, oh, there must be a thesis defense that you're overseeing. And, and then at church, either someone died or someone rose from the dead. So, so, so here we are. Here we are this morning. The Apostle Paul writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the churches of Galatia and also to us. He says in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me briefly? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are gathered here this morning, uh, hopefully all of us, because we're convinced that, that someone actually did get up from the dead. And that has changed everything for everybody. It has changed everything for us. Uh, it, 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 it brings significance, it, means, it, it brings meaning and, and purpose in, in a world right now that is wandering and wondering how to gain meaning and how to gain significance. There was a, a recent Wall Street Journal poll, it's, it's made all the headlines, I'm sure you've seen it, that where the results were very disturbing, that the pollsters asked people, what is very important to you? What is very important to you? And, and they went through a number of things. Repeating a poll that was first done 25 years ago, 1998. And, and what, they, what the poll revealed was that things that were very important 25 years ago have, have rapidly declined. Uh, things that uh, normally are, are, are held with high esteem, like, like patriotism. Patriotism, a, a love of country. 1998, 70% of Americans polled said that was very important to them. 25 years later, today, only 38%. Having children, family, 1998, 60% of people. Today, less than 30. Religion. Is religion very important to you? The pollsters asked. 25 years ago, 62% of Americans said, oh yes, it's very important. Uh, today, less than 40%. Even, even tolerance for others, tolerance, the, 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 the virtue of the day. 25 years ago, 80% of people would have said, yeah, tolerance is very important, but today, less than 60%. Community involvement, community involvement, 46% 25 years ago. Today, barely over 20. What is very important to people? The only thing that, that the poll asked is this very important to you, where the numbers went up? Money. Money. What's clear, apparently, is that we care about ourselves and very little else. And those are troubling. 
results. Uh, no doubt COVID had a lot to do with that and, and the uncertain economic times, certainly. But the troubling results raise the question, what really matters? What, what really matters? And we're gathered here this morning, Easter Sunday, 2023, to commemorate and celebrate something that happened two millennia ago. So this morning, as we, as we work through a few verses of Paul's letter to the Galatians, if, if you're visiting this morning and maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I, I would like for you as you listen to ask yourself, what is most important to you and is there anything that you would give your life to? And then for the rest of us this morning, you, you, you're here because you are a follower of Jesus. We're gathered here because of something that happened in history 2,000 years ago. How does that event shape your behavior today, and how does that give you hope for tomorrow? So, so those are the questions we're going to be thinking about. Uh, we, we kicked off this study of the book of Galatians last week, and in those first 10 verses or so, we saw that the churches that Paul had first established, his very first missionary journey, these were the first converts, the first churches that he had planted. And so they're, they're, they're like his firstborn. They're, they're very, very uh, significant to him. And as I say that, I realize, does that mean that my second and third and fourth and fifth children are not as important? No, that's not true. Shouldn't have said it that way. But at, at any rate, these are very important churches to Paul. They're very important churches to him. And, and he is deeply troubled because he has heard that there are people coming up from Jerusalem who are preaching a different gospel. They, they, are, they, are begin, they are questioning what Paul had said. They think they're the experts on what following the Jewish Messiah is about. And, and as we'll see as we work through the book of Galatians, what they're telling them is, hey, it's great that you're following the Jewish Messiah as Gentiles, but now keep on going and start obeying the law. That's what true Jewish Christians, followers of the Jewish Messiah would do. And, and Paul is, is stunned and he is perplexed. We saw that last week. And he wants to remind them that the only legitimate gospel is the one that he preached to them, to the churches of Galatia. And he says that even if an angel from heaven should appear and preach something other than what I preached, he says, let them be cursed. And he's going to have even stronger language later in the letter. So that's where we pick up the, the letter at this point. And, and, and let me read verses 11 and 12 again. He says, he begins again, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we begin where we left off last week, He's not trying to please man as he goes and, and preaches the gospel to all throughout Asia Minor. He's, that's, that's not his motivation. That's not his goal. If it was, he would be doing something utterly different. And he would come with a different sort of message. He is not trying to please man. He's not a people pleaser. He wants to please Christ. Therefore, he is preaching a gospel that is not human in origin, but it comes from divine sources. He received his gospel message through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And for Paul, this was vitally important. He saw Jesus Christ. He saw him. He heard Jesus Christ. He was commissioned by Jesus Christ. Later, Paul would write a letter to the church in Corinth, and he would say much the same thing, using much the same language, reminding them of the gospel that he preached 
everywhere he went. He was always on message and his message never changed. He wrote to the church in Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, it's, it's literally like the same thing. Now I would have you know, brothers, same, same sort of language, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here's the gospel that he preached. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel. That is the gospel by which we are saved, have been saved, are being saved, and will yet be saved. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Honestly, nothing has changed throughout all of eternity. That has always been the divine plan. And it's not plan B, C, or D. It's really not even plan A. It's just the plan. And Paul was steadfast in this. Christ died for sins. He died on our behalf. And this was not something that just was ad hoc, like Jesus finds himself on the cross unwillingly, unwittingly, and then God says, well, what am I going to do? This went sideways. No, this happened in accordance with the scriptures. And then he was buried. That's part of the gospel message. Why? Because it shows that he actually died. He actually legitimately died. He wasn't just mostly dead. Miracle Max was nowhere to be seen and he wouldn't have done anything anyway, right? He really died and was buried. And we might think, well, maybe they just didn't understand back then. No, they weren't morons. They knew when people died. They were used to it, right? They had it down. They knew when people died. And he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And again, this was all part of the divine plan. That's the message that Paul preached everywhere he went. And that's the message that he preached to the Galatians. And that's the message that Lord willing, you will always hear at Gresham Bible Church. Paul's gospel is not man's gospel. And we might ask, well, what would man's gospel be? What would that be? And, and, and we would have to admit, as we look around, there are many human gospels out there, and most of them aren't even religious. I, I'm not even talking about other religions. People know there's a problem, and, the, and that the stakes are really high, and, and that the stakes involve us. There is something achingly wrong with this world. So we try to solve the problem in a myriad of ways. And that myriad of ways has one thing in common. They're all human in origin. We come up with the solution. They are what Paul would call man's gospel. We're all trying to save ourselves. We're all trying to find meaning, to come up with some way to reconcile ourselves to each other, to ourselves, most importantly to God. So what do we do? And, and we might think, well, we've been getting better and better at this. No, we haven't. No, we haven't. The book of Ecclesiastes does a deep dive into something around the year 1000 BC, roughly, where I, I assume the author is Solomon, and he delves into all the different ways that people tried to find meaning and significance. See if any of these sound familiar. Wisdom, pursuit of wisdom, philosophy, learning, knowledge to fill your mind, pleasure, pleasure, hedonism to fill your body, wealth and power. Man, if we could just get wealth and power, that would make us happy. Materialism to fill your pocket, 
So apparently what people are trying in 2023, it's been tried before for like millennia. Duty, social service, honor, do things to make you feel good, serve others. That will work. That will work. Ethics, to appease our conscience. Strangely enough, Solomon talks about piety and religion. Piety and religion. I'm just going to try to serve God as best I can. Whatever the conception of God might be, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do all sorts of religious things. And, And you know what Solomon's conclusion on all that is? Meaningless. You get to the end of your life, and the end of your life is just like everybody else's who didn't do any of those, or who who did those things and didn't do others, right? Now, some of those things that I just listed, all of them actually have some good sides. They're not all bad. But the judgment of the great philosopher, the great sage, is that they're all ultimately meaningless. And in the end, they don't bring us significance. They don't bring us meaning. They're not worth living for, and they're definitely not worth dying for. Now, if, if we had created ourselves, if humans had created ourselves, then those things, they might be worth trying because, you know, if we had created ourselves, and it would probably be us, we would be the experts on ourselves, right? But we didn't create ourselves. We were created by someone greater than us. We were created by a God to image him and to live in the world that he created. This is our Father's world. And because this is so, our fundamental problem is that we have rebelled against God. We find ourselves in an adversarial relationship with him. The Bible calls that sin. Now, we might not think of it that way, but that's how God thinks of it. That's how he describes it. And if we're sideways with our creator, it will be no surprise that we then are sideways with each other and we're sideways with our environment, and we're sideways even with ourselves. Now, we have been created by this great God who is qualitatively greater than us. Think back to our study the last couple months in the book of Isaiah. And so what kind of sense does it make for us to think as creatures, I know what's wrong with with us, I know what's wrong with the world, and I can solve it. We as humans are separated from a qualitatively superior God. Why would we trust a gospel of our own contrivance? Wouldn't it be better to go to God and let him describe the situation and for him to prescribe the cure? We try to save ourselves. We try to save each other on our best days. And all our efforts have been tried over and over and over again, and they don't work. And Paul's here to say, I am not preaching man's gospel. I'm preaching something of divine origin. Listen to me. But what's interesting is that he wasn't talking to unbelievers. He was talking to Christians. What do Christians do with the gospel? How how might we be like the church in Galatia for those of us who know Christ? Well, sometimes we forget the gospel. That is... We, we believed it back then, but now it's up to me to make my way with God. But, but Paul would have you know, and I'm here to say, <laughs> how you got in is how you keep going. How you got in is how you keep going. How did you get in? By repenting and believing in Jesus. And that's how you keep going. And that's how you always will keep on going. Don't forget 
the gospel. We never grow past the gospel, which is why Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we will keep on preaching Jesus Christ died for sins and he rose on the third day that we might live. Sometimes we can add to the gospel. We, we, we try to do things. That's what Paul's really going to address in the book of Galatians. It's like, well, well God got me going, and, 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 and now I'm going to keep on doing that, believing that, but do other stuff as well. So I'm going to like serve in the church, and I'm going to make sure I come every single Sunday. And you should do all those things. But that doesn't save you, and that doesn't reconcile you to God, and that doesn't keep you reconciled to God. And sometimes we can subtract from the gospel. We forget how we got in by repenting and believing the gospel. And we think, okay, well, now I'm in, so it doesn't really matter what I do from this point on. But how you got in is how you keep on going. How'd you get in? By repenting and believing the gospel. And so what do you do today? You repent and you believe the gospel. And tomorrow, what do you do? You repent and you believe the gospel. Not that you have to ask Jesus in your heart every single day. But God's thoughts about sin are the same in the past and the present and the future. And so we keep repenting, we keep confessing, and we keep believing. I think that's how Christians can sometimes either forget or add to or subtract from the gospel. And Paul's message to us is that his gospel comes from Jesus. And he would have us hear this, listen to him. Well then, in verses 13 through 24, he begins to defend this assertion that I got my gospel from Jesus. Before his conversion, this is what his life was like. Look at verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul tells them about what his life was like before he came to Christ. He was advancing in Judaism. We know from the other scriptures that Paul was a student of Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis of that era. He, what's he saying here? He's saying, guys, these people from Jerusalem are coming up and talking to you about, about how to follow uh, the Jewish Messiah and how to be good Jewishly. He's saying, I know all that stuff. I've got every credential imaginable. Beyond that, Paul understood himself to be a persecutor of the church. Why would he think that? Because he was. Before his conversion, he was a persecutor of the church. Here's how he describes himself in the book of Philippians. He says, uh, he's addressing other people who are troubling now, this time the church in Philippi. And he says, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. And he says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. So he's thinking, if, if anyone wants to try to outdo me, if you will, they can't. They can't do it. Why? He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. 
But he looks on all of that, and here's his judgment of it. But everything that was a gain to me before I came to Christ, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. So Paul was no stranger to Judaism. In fact, he was probably the golden child when it came to the Jewish hierarchy, right? He was the one, he was like the heir to the throne, not like a literal throne, but, but in the hierarchy, he was the guy, right? So Paul doesn't need anyone to tell him about how to relate to the law as though he had forgotten something. You could say that he was an expert and he had probably forgotten more Torah the Jewish law, than the people who were troubling the Galatians by saying, you guys got to follow the Jewish law. Paul says, no, I know all that stuff. And my verdict is, no, you don't. Paul then talks about his conversion in verses 15 and 16. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So here he talks about his conversion, how he met Jesus. In the book of Acts, he he records this testimony. Here's a couple times. In Acts chapter 9, he writes, or, or he says, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, Paul. Now, what's he doing? This is before his conversion moments before his conversion, he's on his way to Damascus. He has letters of authority to arrest people who, un, who claim to be Christians and who are meeting as a church. So he's going to persecute the church, to arrest them. He sees it as an act of obedience to God. He is very zealous, right? Falling to the, so there, a light from heaven flashes around him on the way. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is his, is his Hebrew name. Who are you, Lord? Saul said. And then something that had to just cut him straight through the heart. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I want to highlight here, Paul was set apart in time. Something actually happened to him in time and space. And he was, he was converted. He was called to preach the gospel of the resurrected Christ to the Gentiles. Later, when he's in uh, the, the, the city, with, he, he encounters a man named Ananias who was given a vision to go and talk to this, to this Saul guy. And Ananias was a follower of Jesus, said, what, are you kidding me? Lord, he is a persecutor of the church. And this is Jesus' words to Ananias. Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul was converted, set apart before time began for the very purpose of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, why does that matter? Well, I take it that most of us, as I look out here, are not Jewish. We are Gentiles. The doors of heaven are flung wide open. And this was all part of the plan that started in time. I also want to point out here for us, Paul met the Lord on what for him was a really bad day. A really bad day. I I, I don't know if like your plan, you know, like if you could plan, now when do I want to meet Jesus for the first time? You're probably not going to write 
on my way to persecute Christians. But that's exactly when Paul met Jesus. And what that demonstrates is that no one is too far gone to come to Christ. No one is too wretched to be embraced by Jesus. No one is too vile to be used by Christ. If if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian and, and, and you think, man, okay, I needed to come here on Easter and then I need to keep coming to church like three or four times and then maybe I'll think about coming to Jesus. Paul would have you say, no, no, no. <laughs> you don't clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You just need to repent and believe the gospel. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to God. Remember the old hymn, just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. That's how you come to Christ. You understand your need. You know you can't clean yourself up. And anything that you try to do to, do, to head in that direction is just pretense. And you go to Jesus And friends, if if Jesus can save someone like Paul, then I think he can save anyone, including your friends and including your family. So don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep sharing the gospel. Every one of us, we know this, right, in the depths of our being. Every one of us who know Christ know this truth. It is true that I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. He can save anyone, and we're all evidence of that. After his conversion, verses 17 through 24, he gives a bit of a travel log. He says, I didn't immediately consult with anyone after, after seeing Jesus, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Paul goes to Arabia and then to Damascus, and then he heads finally to Jerusalem. After Jesus was revealed to him, he didn't consult with anyone in Jerusalem. He didn't get his gospel by talking to the apostles or anyone else. Rather, he went to Arabia, probably in the Transjordan area, present-day Jordan. We, we, we don't know what he did there. I assume he was preaching the gospel to people and reflecting and meditating. But you know, we, we know what he didn't do. He didn't get his gospel by listening to the apostles or anyone else that came from Jerusalem. He finally goes to Jerusalem. He's there 15 days. He met Peter, maybe James, but no one else. He talked to no one else from Jerusalem. There was no secret society of the Judaizers into which he was initiated. He, didn't, he definitely didn't defer to anybody. Paul was an apostle because he had gotten his commission from Jesus Christ himself. He he, he takes this vow. He says, I'm telling you the truth. These things happened. This was the calendar. This is where I went. And then he goes to Syria and Cilicia. And and all that the people of Judea had at this point were rumors about him. 
And his point there is that he didn't meet with anyone from Jerusalem who entrusted him with the gospel. Why? He got his gospel from Jesus. No one was telling him what to say and that he was somehow getting it wrong now, which I think is what the accusation was. Now, why this travel log? That's basically what it is, right? What can we learn from verses 13 through 24? Verses that recount his pre-conversion years, his conversion, and then basically like a travel log of the next three years of his life. What does that matter? What does that matter to us today, right? Paul would go on to say that all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So how are these words penned by Paul helpful for such things? What does this have to do with you? Well, I can think of a couple things. And they're all related to the fact that for the Christian, history really matters. It doesn't just kind of matter. It really matters. And and the first one is is what's transparently there on the page. Paul's argument that the gospel he preached was, he rooted his argument in talking about history, something that actually happened. It's not a sensation that he had, some vague spirituality. He says, this happened to me in time and space. I met Jesus on the road to Damascus on a specific day, and then I went here, and then I went here, and then I went here. There are facts about the rise of the early church. Now, these were of immediate interest to the Galatians because there were those who were troubling those churches, claiming that Paul's gospel was contrived, that he was working for Jerusalem but getting it wrong, and, 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 and that the people going up to Galatia and challenging that, they were the trustworthy ambassadors from that city. So Paul walks through the actual events of his life to demonstrate that the claims made against him were factually untrue. What Paul did in time and space matters because it demonstrates that he did not receive the gospel from any merely human source, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ in time and space. And the fact that Paul then goes to Arabia and Cilicia and Syria, that really matters and it really matters for us because it proves that the claims of his antagonists were false. Paul did receive his gospel from the Lord. It's not man's gospel. It has divine origin. The claims that he received the gospel from people were proven proven to be untrue because Paul was not actually anywhere near the people supposed to be the source of his message. And Paul could prove it. So if the authenticity of Paul's gospel message could be defended by appealing to something as simple as a travel log, it tells us something about the robustness of the Christian faith. Christians, particularly young people who maybe you haven't walked with the Lord as long as others, you need to know that the Christian faith is built upon a foundation of facts most of which have been verified, some of which await verification, but none of which have been demonstrated to be false. Now, the Christian faith is still faith, but it's not an empty faith. It's not a groundless faith. Christian, you have good reasons for believing what you believe. The book of Hebrews describes faith this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not the assurance of silliness, the conviction of things that are impossible. 
Paul was adamant that he received his gospel that he proclaimed through a revelation of Jesus Christ, which means Jesus appeared to him after he had died, after claims were made that he rose from the dead. But Paul saw him. He saw him. Now, I'll admit, such things don't often happen, but that doesn't mean they don't ever happen or did not happen. Paul would write to the church in Corinth, and he would talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and he would say that Jesus appeared to the apostles, most of whom were still alive at that time. He appeared to me, Paul was definitely still alive at that time, and 500 other people. So when Paul wrote that letter to the Corinthians about the resurrection of Jesus, he was able to say, there are hundreds of witnesses who can verify that Jesus got up from the dead. That is a significant source, and it has not been repudiated, but has been verified in the lives of millions of followers of Jesus since then. I have been a follower of Jesus for half a century, and I feel absolutely intellectually justified in following him. I find in Christ the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom are found. I find in the biblical narrative a worldview that makes sense of everything I see in the world, the good and the bad, the unities and the diversities. They're all accounted for in Scripture. That doesn't mean that they're not hard. It doesn't mean that there are not challenges or things that are perplexing. But it doesn't mean if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to feel stupid. Like, you've, like you're in Wonderland and the Queen of Hearts is asking you to believe seven ridiculous things before breakfast. That is not what being a Christian is. Second, history matters because Jesus got up from the dead historically. That brings us to Easter. In verse 16, Paul testified that the Lord was revealed to him in time and space on the road to Damascus. Paul saw the resurrected Lord. I wonder if he ever retraced that steps and stopped at that place and thought, Moses thought he was on holy ground. Look at this. And, and, and maybe for all of us who have, who have converted and, and, and we have believed the gospel, that there's that place where God, that God used to reveal his son to you. Now, we might think that vision, oh, it's just merely spiritual, like, like he saw a ghost. But the rest of Paul's writings demonstrate that Paul believed he had seen the resurrected Lord. Paul testified in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, that it was the Lord who was raised from the dead who had appeared to him. Who might, so, so here we are, Easter Sunday. What does it matter that Jesus in time and space historically got up from the dead? I, I want to give you three things to consider. Number one, if Jesus didn't get up from the dead, real, really, in time and space, in history, then we are still in our sins and we will perish. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 18, he says, if the dead are not raised, then of course not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. And if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ in time and space demonstrates that the penalty for our sin has been paid in full. 
If Jesus did not get up from the dead, yeah, he might have been crucified on a Roman cross for sin, but he's not raised from the dead, then he's still dead, right? Which means he's still paying for our sins. And if he is still paying the penalty for our sins, then our sins are not finally paid for, are they? And if that's the case, then we're still under the penalty of death. That's why this day matters. It matters so much. It's, it's one thing for Jesus to die for sins, but the resurrection tells us God says, paid in full. It's done. No more penalty. It's all done. It, for those of you who have a mortgage, you understand this, right? Is it your house or is it the bank's? Well, if you're still paying your mortgage, it's not really your house, is it? Not totally, not completely, not finally. And I, I would add this, too. What Paul says here is, is very helpful for people who are investigating Christianity. He says, if Jesus didn't get up from the dead, then we're all a bunch of morons, it, like, like we are right now. This, that's, that, that would be his verdict on us. We are totally wasting our time, and there are much better things to do than to gather and talk about fables and myths, right? So Christianity, Paul says, it's falsifiable. It's falsifiable. There's a criterion for falsification. If Jesus didn't actually get up from the dead, then move on to a different religious idea, because Christians are idiots. But if he did get up from the dead, you might want to listen to him. You might want to listen to him. Seems like he would have a little bit of authority. So that's the first thing. The second reason why the resurrection matters, moving ahead on our own calendar. If Jesus didn't get up from the dead, there's, there will not be ultimate justice. Not finally. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, again, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, that is Jesus Christ, the risen Lord when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. Here's the point here. If you've ever wondered how long, O Lord, look at Easter. Look at what happened today. Jesus got up from the dead. The resurrection proves that God is serious about sin. It proves that he is serious about justice. It shows that he has a plan and it is going the way that he wants it to go. And it shows that the plan is well underway. The resurrection proves that the Lord is on the move, that the Lion of Judah is on the prowl and that judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. The, the world right now, it gets stranger and stranger as the moral fabric with which our holy God has created the world. It is ignored and it is torn asunder by his people, his image bearers, humans. But it won't be that way forever. We need to understand that. Jesus got up from the dead and so he's returning. He's returning, and when he returns, judgment comes, and everything's going to be put to rights. And, and, and we yearn for that day because we want there to be righteousness, and we want things to be put back together the way they ought to be. But that comes with an edge because it means when Jesus returns, it's over. It's over for people, and so right now, we winsomely and we lovingly warn people that the world's ways are not the ways of God and that he is watching and he is keeping score 
And the resurrection shows that his plan is underway and the Lord is going to return. The risen Lord will return. And Easter gives us hope. Third and finally, if Jesus did not get up from the dead in time and space, if we're just wasting our time here, it means that we will not rise from the dead. Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15, As it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, at his coming, us, those who belong to Christ. Our future resurrection hinges on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in time and space. And that one day, if the Lord does not return before we pass, we too, in time and space, will rise to live again. Easter, therefore, is not just a celebration of what did happen, but it's a celebration of the certainty that we have of what will happen. If God can raise Jesus from the dead on whom he put all the sin of the world, it's easy to raise us. The heavy lifting's been done. Easter is not just a way to honor the risen Lord Jesus Christ, although it's certainly that. It's a testimony of what we believe will happen. And of course, that should make all the difference in the world for us. It makes all the difference, not just for eternal life, which is really cool, we live forever, but for us in the here and now. Because we recognize that this life, it's not all that there is. In fact, this life that we, are, that we enjoy, the, the great joys and the great sorrows right now, that on the timeline of eternity, it is a blip. I mean, what is 70 to 80 years compared to eternity? Because Jesus got up from the dead, therefore, we should willingly pour ourselves out in this life because we recognize that this is not all there is. Heaven is a great reward, and God will not be anyone's debtor. God will pay back for all of eternity every sacrifice and every act of faithfulness that we perform here and now. In Gresham Bible Church, even though I've only been here for a short while, I've already seen evidence of your hope in the resurrection. I've seen families give themselves in love to those whom society judges to be a burden. And you do so willingly, even joyfully, because Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then you will too. I've seen people extend themselves in kindness when they had no reason to think it would be returned. They, you, you've done this because Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, you know that you will too. I've seen people testify to Christ when all they ought to expect from the world is derision, but you did so happily and hopefully because Jesus rose from the dead. And therefore, you know that you will too. And and every hardship that you endure today will be worth it. Every bit of shame or mockery or scorn that you you endure today will be worth it. 
And for, for those of you who are, who are a bit older, my encouragement to you is to hang in there and finish well and let everyone else here see you finish well. It will be an encouragement. And young people, look at the older people in this congregation and see them walk with Jesus and see them persevere to the end and say, I want to be like that. I want to be like that person. Jesus Christ is worth giving your life to. And I see it in the people around me. Christians have always understood that although this is our Father's world, it's been so ravaged by sin that it is not really our home. Our home is the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. And because Jesus got up from the dead, we ought to be willing to stand for Christ even when it's foolish in the eyes of the world. We ought to happily exchange temporary earthly applause and approval for eternal heavenly applause and approval and approval. Why? Because Jesus got up from the dead, and we will too. History matters because when Jesus got up from the dead, everything changed for everybody. What we do today matters because Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. What we will do tomorrow matters because Jesus rose from the dead. And though I don't know exactly what tomorrow holds, I know that the Lord of history does. And because Jesus got up from the dead, I know it's a rock-solid certainty that he's coming again. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we're we're stunned at at this great plan of redemption that that you have uh, put into place. And Father, we uh, ask that, that you would enable us to, to live rightly in light of that. For, for those here who don't know Christ, I, I pray, Father, that, that, that you would work in their hearts to, so, so that they would hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and, and come willingly and hopefully and joyfully. And for us, that, that we would hear the voice of, our, uh, of the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, and, and we would continue to come and continue to be joyful. Father, give us an, an eternal perspective that's rooted not in, 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 a, in a senseless hope, but rooted in the reality that Jesus got up from the dead. We're grateful, so grateful, of what you did 2,000 years ago. We're grateful for what you've done in our lives, and we look for in hope to what you will yet do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.